Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. Welcome everyone to the Movie Marquee. Today's showing will be the 1984 release by Rob Reiner, the wonderful rockumentary, This is Spinal Tap. With me today is Ken. But this goes to 11. And Ted. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. And I'm Eric. It's such a fine line between stupid and uh, clever. Gentlemen, let's talk Spinal Tap. When's the first time you saw this movie? Ken? Probably in high school, 86, 87. Everybody was wearing This Is Spinal Tap t-shirts and checked it out on cable. And you know what? I didn't appreciate it until I was in my 20s. That is roughly the first time I saw it was in high school. Rock on. How about you, Ted? I don't know. I've been trying to think of when I first saw this movie. It was probably high school. It would have been rented from the local video store. I have no <laughs> recollection. None. I, it's, it had to be high school. It's always just been there. Yeah. The quotes and stuff have always just lived in my vernacular, so I don't know. It's hard to pin down the exact point. I'm with you, man. I don't know when the first time I saw this. It had to be sometime in high school, because I always remember using that. This is 11 right. line throughout everything, so it had to be sometime in, I would assume, hell, late 80s, early 90s. All right. Awesome. Well, let's talk some particulars on this one. Who's got them? That would be me, Eric. All right. So, this is Spinal Tap, directed by Rob Reiner. It was written by Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, Harry Shear, and Rob Reiner. It was produced by Karen Murphy. Cinematography was done by Peter Smokler. It was distributed by Embassy Pictures, and the release date was March 2nd of 1984. It has a running time of 82 minutes, with a budget of $2 million. Nice. And it made $4.7 million at the North American box office. So, a big moneymaker. It stars Michael McKeon as David St. Hubbins, Christopher Guest as Nigel Tufnell, Harry Shear as Derek Smalls, Rob Reiner as Marty, Tony Hendra as Ian Faith, R.J. Purnell as Mick Shrimpton, David Kaff as Viv Savage, and June Chadwick as Janine Pettibone. <laughs> Some of these names are kind of interesting. Oh, it's awesome. What did the critics think of this one? 95% on the tomato meter made it certified fresh. Squeeze me. It has an audience score of 92%. Very Dude, everyone loves this movie. Come on. Yeah. We love and it's, Hopefully. Spider-Man. It's kind of surprising hopefully. that that many critics. Were you able to find, Ken, how many of the critics at the time liked it? Or is it critics that have no. come out later? It's basically critics that came out later. So it's like 66 critics, and they're all over the place. So the Associated Press actually said, Reiner with McKeon, Guest, and Harry Shear have done a great job in creating and portraying characters that are dim-witted, cliche, and yet oddly endearing. I take it he liked it. Variety, from their staff, said that for Music Biz Insiders, This is Spinal Tap is vastly amusing satire of heavy metal bands. Real Film Reviews didn't kind of like it. They said it was sporadically amusing, but all too uneven pieces of work. They just suck. Don't know what their problem is. 
I couldn't find the review for Roger Ebert, but I did hear that Roger Ebert did like this, but I couldn't find it. At least it wasn't on the tomato meter. Time Out magazine stated, Reiner's brilliantly inventive script and smart visuals avoid all the obvious pitfalls, making this one the funniest ever films about the music business. And then the Chicago Reader said, The material is constantly clever and funny, though ultimately the attitudes are too narrow to nourish a feature league film. So he was kind of like in the middle there. Empire Magazine says Ryan's brilliant rockumentary sends up the, its subject matter in the documentary form with such deft perception that confusing it with a genuine article is easy mistake to make. He gave it five out of five. Ed, what did you have for Mr. Roger Ebert? Roger really liked the movie. It's actually part of his great films series. He gave it four stars. He rewrote his review in 2001. I like this particular part of it here that that I've read. He writes, Reiner puts his finger on the film's deepest appeal. It is funny about Spinal Tap, but it's not cruel. It shares their pleasure in being themselves. It has affection for these three fragile egos. Yes, they're spoiled. Yes, they make impossible demands. And yes, their music is pretty bad. But they're not bad men. They're holy fools. Living in a dream still somehow barely holds together for them. So I did find the review for Roger Ebert myself, too, on Rotten Tomatoes. And it does say the satire is deft, wicked touch. Four out of four. But that is it for the reviews, Eric. I've got three more reviews here uh, for Spinal Tap albums, if you'd like to hear them. Oh, the reviews for the albums. Go for it. The albums. This pretentious, ponderous collection of religious rock psalms is enough to prompt the question, what day did the Lord create Spinal Tap, and couldn't he have rested on that day too? Their other album, this tasteless cover, is a good indication of lack of musical invention within. The musical growth of this band cannot even be charted. They are treading water in a sea of retarded sexuality and (laughs) bad poetry. And of course, my favorite one, the review of their album, Shark Sandwich, was merely a two-word review, which simply read, Shit Sandwich. Oh, it's awesome. So it's and for people really... who've seen the movie, they'll know what we're talking about. I don't they... do justice in reading them. We'll have to talk more about that, but those reviews actually were ad-libbed. I didn't know they, they had... were ad-libbed. You yeah, can if kind you of, watch you the can film. kind of tell. <laughs> They're trying to hold the... back the laughter. Yeah, the shit sandwich one, you can tell. Yeah, I'm going to have to watch that scene again. So watch this for their reactions. That's awesome. All right, Ted, what do you got for the plot on this one? This should be good. The plot of This is Spinal Tap. Do it in a British accent. Filmmaker Marty <laughs> DeBergi. The plot for this is Spinal Tap. Filmmaker Martin Marty DeBergi is creating a documentary that follows the English rock group Spinal Tap on their 1982 United States concert tour to promote their new album, Smell the Glove. The band comprises childhood friends David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell on vocals and guitar, bassist Derek Smalls, keyboardist Viv Savage, and drummer Mick Shrimpton. They were known as the Originals until they found out another band had that name, so they changed their name to the New Originals. They had a hit as the Thamesmen with their single, Gimme Some Money, before changing their name to Spinal Tap and achieving a minor hit with the Flower Power anthem, Listen to the Flower People, and finally transitioning to heavy metal. Several of their previous drummers died in strange circumstances, Spontaneous Human Combustions, Peter James Bond, A Bizarre Gardening Accident, John Stumpy Peppis, 
and choking on vomit, Eric Stumpy Joe Childs, someone else's vomit. Segments of Marty's film show David and Nigel to be competent, dim-witted, and immature musicians. At one point, Nigel shows Marty a custom-made amplifier that has volume knobs that go up to 11, believing this would make their output louder. Several of the band's tour shows are canceled because of low ticket sales, and major retailers refuse to sell Smell the Glove because of its sexist cover art. Tensions arise between the band and their manager, Ian Faith. David's girlfriend, Janine, a manipulative yoga and astrology devotee, joins the group on tour and participates in band meetings, influencing their costumes and stage presentation. The band's distributor opts to release Smell the Glove with an entirely black cover without consulting the band. Despite their manager convincing the band that it would have a similar appeal to the White Album, the album fails to draw crowds to autograph sessions with the band. Nigel suggests staging a lavish show and asks Ian to order a Stonehenge megalith. However, Nigel, rushing a sketch on a napkin, mislabels its dimensions, and the resulting prop is only 18 inches high rather than 18 feet, making the group a laughing stock. The group blames Ian, and when David suggests Janine should co-manage the group, Ian quits. The tour continues, rescheduled into smaller and smaller venues. Nigel is marginalized by Janine and David. At a gig at the United States Air Force Base, Nigel is upset by an equipment malfunction and quits mid-performance. At their next gig in an amphitheater at an amusement park, the band finds their repertoire is severely limited without Nigel and improvise an experimental jazz odyssey, which is poorly received. At the last show of the tour, David and Derek consider exploring old side projects, such as a musical theater production about Jack the Ripper. Before they go on stage, Nigel arrives to tell them that their song Sex Farm has become a major hit in Japan and that Ian wants to arrange a tour there. As the band performs, David invites Nigel on stage, reuniting them, which excites everyone but Janine. With Ian reinstalled as manager, Spinal Tap performs a series of sold-out shows in Japan, despite the loss of drummer Mick, who explodes on stage. Meanwhile, Smell the Glove was reissued with new cover art. They were unable to come up with the perfect cover art, so they just used blank black background with nothing on it. And that's the plot of This is Spinal Tap. It's a total cheap trick moment there, like live at Budokan with the Japanese oh, loving totally. them. totally. Yeah. I have a whole list of that they spoof as far as real-life bands compared to fictional This is Spinal Tap. Some of the bands have more than one comparison. Ted, would you do me a favor? Uh-huh. Kick my ass. Just kick my ass. <laughs> kick my ass. <laughs> kick my ass. Great Paul Schaefer moment. Oh, yeah. No, Paul uh, Schaefer is really funny in this movie. I mean, we, we'll talk about all the cameos in this movie. Yeah. It's it's incredible. It's it's crazy. So this is what I was able to come up with, the different bands that were parodied and what they relate to in the movie. Of course, Judas Priest with Harry Shearer's S&M outfit. That's total Judas Priest. One of the bands that the music is similar to is Deep Purple. Yeah. Um, the skull on the stage, that's totally an Alice Cooper ripoff. When they go back in time and they look back at the black and white of their first group, they look like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Yes, they, on, everyone did. Yeah. The Kinks, everyone yeah. looked like that in 64. Also, too, with the Beatles, 
when they do the record release party for Smell the Glove, there's a famous picture of the Beatles before they broke up at one of the release parties. I don't know if it was for Let It Be or if it was for the White Album, but there's a famous picture of them all together, and the whole atmosphere of the party looks just like that picture. And then, of course, John Bonham. He was the drummer for Led Zeppelin, and, of course, he died from choking on his own vomit. Christopher Guest, he looks just like Ozzy Osbourne. Like early Black Sabbath Ozzy Osbourne. He does. He yep. looks exactly like him. The double-necked guitar, that's a total rush with Getty Lee. Jimmy Page famously played a double-necked guitar. And the whole Stonehenge thing is it's so rush. The Van Halen, the thing with the Violin. backstage. Well, that's a Jimmy Page thing. But the backstage with the food, famously Van oh, Halen. Yeah. They wanted all the brown M&Ms taken out. Also, the checkered pants. That's totally a Van Halen thing, as well as a couple of the guitar styles. One of them really looks like the guitar that Eddie Van Halen used in Eruption. And Big Bottom Girls was <laughs> compared to Queen, Fat Bottom Girls. Fat Bottom Girls, yeah. You had mentioned Cheap Trick. A lot of the clothes are very similar to Cheap Trick. And then, of course, sure. they were huge in Japan. The heavy metal band Anvil and Motorhead, they combined the names. That what is what created the name Spinal Tap, how the look of the, the word, and of course the use of the umlaut over the N. That's a Motorhead thing. Derek Smalls's Mutton Chops, that's based right off of Lemmy from Motorhead. The one Spinal Tap record cover looks just like Let It Bleed by the Rolling Stones. And then the religious album that Spinal Tap released looks just like Physical Graffiti. And uh, David Bowie, because they all wear eye makeup. And uh, Pink Floyd, Money. And their song is Give Me Some Money. Of course, then there's the Yoko Ono and the Beatles with uh, right. Janine. The rock and roll creation song. That's total Black Sabbath and The Who. So those are just a couple of the things that I was able to find out. There was a part where Derek Smalls was talking about being in the middle of two genius creators. That sounded like an interview that I heard with one of the members of the Eagles when he was discussing Friday Night. Yeah, Hilly. that so does surprise I, me. I, I did get a vibe on that. You know, you had the backstage with the sandwiches mm -hmm. where you had the tiny bread and you had the big meats and they're folding it back <laughs> and folding the bread and the bread's breaking. It's like, come on. And he's trying to just show him to fold the meat so it would fit yeah, on the bread. Yeah, fold the meat only. And he's like, but the bread is breaking. Yes. Right. <laughs> the inspiration from Van Halen, who right. wanted all the brown M&Ms removed from their M&M dish. The reason that they did that was because they wanted to make sure that if they went to the dressing room and they saw that the venue had done that for them, they mm -hmm. knew they that the Right, the, rest their their writers, the rest of yeah. their writers on their contract were going to be were going to be met. But yeah, that's one of their most infamous things. They're showing in the olives, meadows and olives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this one doesn't have one. This one does. And and this then, has a little guy in it. <laughs> if I could be wrong, but I thought I saw a cigarette butt smashed into one of the, like probably did probably. Yeah. yeah, I just thought that bit was kind of funny. Played off really well. Oh, and I that era where you could just smoke anywhere. They're walking through when they land oh, yeah. in New York. They're walking through yeah. the airport, and they're in hotels. I was thinking I, about how dated this movie is. They were like, yeah, they're not going to sell your your album at Kmart and Sears. Kmart right and enough. Sears. Sears. <laughs> so it's so dated. Good luck at them selling anything. Yeah, Kmart. Right. So. Another really interesting thing is that Aerosmith saw the movie, and I guess they didn't think it was very funny, because I guess they thought the whole Stonehenge thing was making fun of them. 
there was a period where Aerosmith was not good. I guess one of their albums had something to do with Stonehenge on the cover of one of the albums, and they were not happy. Wasn't it Rocks? Something like that. It was right around that era. It was before Run DMC saved Aerosmith. They had Done With Mirrors in 82. That was kind of a flop album for them. And then, yeah, then they had, I think it was Get Your Rocks Off. I think it was just Rocks. I think it was called Rocks. Read somewhere where it was Led Zeppelin's. Yeah, last Led two. Zeppelin had something, something similar, but to me, it always that always stunk of Rush. Twenty one twelve, yeah, definitely has a Rush theme, especially the beginning when he's doing the introduction. You know? Right, Ozzy didn't think oh. that this was funny either because no, he did. In fact, it made a cry yeah. because of how real it seemed like to him. Jeez, see the Calm humor, down, guys. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> bands didn't see the humor. They thought, unfortunately, really real. Gene Simmons from Kiss, he told the story that they actually got lost in a similar fashion, trying to get from the dressing room to the stage, like Spinal Tap does in Cleveland. The Edge from U2 is another one who was shocked and first didn't see the humor because he, he goes, basically, I lived this. I don't think The Edge has a sense of humor. He doesn't seem like he's a real sense of humor type of guy. No, He takes himself really seriously. He and Bono both. So does Bono. Yeah. Uh, I guess he does think it's funny now. I guess it was shocking for a lot of these guys. Some of these bands knew what that was like to not be famous. I loved, it's a subtle, and it's, I mean, there's obviously two scenes with them. The late, great Bruno Kirby as the limo driver. She's uh, reading Yes, I Can by Sammy Davis Jr., Totally obscure, didn't even need to put it in there, but it was just so funny and off the cuff. And then when he smokes the weed and strips down to his, his skivvies and he's singing Sinatra. Yes, I can. If, 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 if uh, Frank Sinatra says it's okay. Says it's okay. It's okay. Actually, up until Bruno Kirby's uh, Lemo Driver part, it almost plays off like it's real documentary. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. you could buy it because you got the people out there um, being interviewed uh, like it's a real concert. And it, it seemed like it's really and they're real. always Everyone's always holding up the sign with the wrong name. It was a Spinal Pap, I think. Spinal uh, Pap. Bruno yeah. Kirby. Yeah, everyone's the, always got the name yeah. of the band wrong. Well, um, I think it's like at the beginning of Rob Reiner, when he was doing his little bit at the beginning, he was playing with his hands like he didn't know where to put them and stuff. He like was putting right. them across his chest. He's like... Like, no, I don't want to do that type of deal. But he made it real. He's like, hey, first time I saw him was at this club. Don't go there. It doesn't exist anymore. So right. it, it, but it played out very well as being a real documentary. But then once you saw the misspelling of Spinal Tap, these musical artists must be high when they were watching this film because right there and then that should have given them clue that this wasn't real at all. I think it's more or less that they can relate to not being famous because a lot of these bands, they suffered for quite a few years before they made it famous. I think it brings up a lot of those memories for them. But I'm glad that you brought up the look of the documentary. You'll be hard-pressed to find a music documentary after this that doesn't have a lot of the same elements that Spinal Tap does. The biggest comparison I can make is... If you watch The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, which is about the heavy metal years of the 80s, yeah. oh my real God, bands. it yeah. is just like Spinal Tap. It's shockingly similar. Some of the conversations that I see in History of the Eagles. Yeah, um, it's another great there, documentary. Very great documentary. And the, the parts where they are actually filming the actual band, those feel like this is Spinal Tap. There's that feeling. And then this recordings, though, of those things were in the late 70s. So this kind of, I could see the parallel a little bit of, of both of them. So. We'll talk about the talent of uh, Michael McKeon and uh, Harry Shearer and the group there. These guys are singing and playing all the real instruments. Yeah, they're real artists. They're rocking. Well, later yeah. on, they go on and do the same thing for A Mighty Win. Yeah. Playing folk, oh, yeah. Folk singers. Yeah. 
two people who totally loved Spinal Tap, and that's because they're our age. Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl. Kurt Cobain was given an interview and they were talking about music documentaries and he goes, Dave Grohl interrupting me said, well, Spinal Tap's awesome. And they both started laughing and they're like, yeah, Spinal Tap's awesome. There were bands that did get it. The Gallagher's from uh, Oasis, they Oasis. actually saw them live mm-hmm. in concert. That's yeah. how much they liked them. It's, it's your bands that didn't have their heyday in the 70s to get it. It's your yeah, late it's, 80s, early yeah. 90s and stuff. They get it. The bands from the 70s, they think it's all a mock against them. Right. They're taking it personally, which is whatever, guys. Calm down. Good thing about this is even though this is kind of a heavy metal band, there are so many genres that are spoofed here. <laughs> that, but they're not really of... a heavy metal band. Jazz, they, jazz, right, they, music, they, start, yeah. they started out as, as, a, <laughs> as a folk band. Uh, yeah, like, it's, yeah. I, I love the progression of how they changed with the times. And it's like the next iteration right. of Spinal Tap was going to be, they were going to be grunge. That's where they go next. They're not going to stay heavy metal, and they really don't have a heavy metal song. Oh, I don't know about that. I think a couple of their tracks are very heavy metal. <laughs> no, they're kind of like an ACDC style. Deep Purple, I it's, think, is a pretty good. The Deep yeah. Purple was about as close as I could get, because when you're talking about when these guys were coming out, if you're going heavy metal that time, I mean, that's when Thrash really took over, and then you had the hair bands, and they're not like the hair bands or the Thrash bands. So No, probably not, but I could probably hear... You I don't hear Metallica, hear Metallica, or you don't hear Poison or Molly Crew. I definitely hear Kiss. I definitely kind of hear Kiss. Oh, yeah, Kiss, Kiss definitely. But here again, is Kiss heavy metal? That's mm, rock and roll. No, right. Yeah, well, it depends on what you classify rock, rock yeah, and roll. Hard rock. Yeah. Hard rock, yeah. Which I, hard, I guess rock. if you talk about Rush, Rush is technically prog rock, I guess, right? Is that what it's called? Prog rock? Uh, progressive rock. Into that late 70s, early 80s, a lot of those genres kind of blend in a blend. little bit with each yeah. other a little bit boston and foreigner and there's little rolling stones here in them well bet that is an interesting comparison because they've evolved kind of like spinal tap yeah except they never went heavy metal you do have that one line where nigel is doing that falsetto vocal it's kind of like a yes thing <laughs> the heartbreak you know? hotel <laughs> yeah oh talk about the worst yeah. heartbreak hotel in the history of heartbreak hotel. Yes. oh i love yeah. that it's great. Yeah, we're not yeah. going to try a three-part harmony right now on this podcast. Let's just put it that <laughs> right. way. I don't, there is right. not one single Elvis song that has three-part harmony. <laughs> right, right. Unless you're, unless you're a member of the Jordanaires, you don't get three-part harmony with Elvis. <laughs> That's one of those funny parts of the movie. So we're talking about the music. Do you guys have a favorite song from the uh, soundtrack? You know, I don't, actually, because honestly, every time I hear them, I just start laughing. There's not one that I really dislike or hate. They're all just kind of the... the, I mean, honestly, I don't like... I know, Ken, yours is that Flower People song. Listen to what the Flower People say. Yeah, I I think that is stupid. I mean, total of the era, obviously, you know. Yeah, I love Big Bottom Girls. Well, yes, yes. hilarious. When this movie came out, I didn't see it to Bobby around 86, 87. I was into that 60s psychedelic rock, so that song fit what i was listening to at the time it's kind of like a really light jefferson airplane ripoff it's that and mamas kind of and papas before dark side of the moon Uma Guma uh, stuff. Floyd. well that's yeah. all instrumental but big bottom girls is my favorite song <laughs> uh, and i i really like rock and roll creation is good too those are my two favorite songs what's the one they sing at the air force base sex farm <laughs> sex farm yeah <laughs> oh lord I just want to hear Nigel's trilogy. Yeah. Oh, Nigel's trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. What's the name of the song, Eric? Uh, Lick my love oh, pump. I, 
Lick, Lick my, my love, love pump. pump. Yes, that's that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. What do you call that? Yes. Lick yes. my love pump. It's a combination yes. of Mozart and Bach. It's a mock. Yeah, it's a mock. It's a mock. <laughs> The accents in this movie that they do, or it makes the movie. It really and, does. And considering that none of them are British. And just the conversations they have with each other are just so natural. You would honestly think they're a, you know, a British band. So it's so well let done. Me get this, so let me get this right. Are we going to do Stonehenge? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, we're not no. going to do Stonehenge. No, we're Stonehenge. That's the other funny <laughs> oh. part. It comes out and it's just like, was that three feet high? It was 18 inches. 18 inches. <laughs> 18 inches. 18 it's inches. one and a half feet high. And you have the... Um, the midget stuff. The, the, the small the, people, the smaller the people, people, people are running yeah. around it. I have to stop the movie every time I watch that. I I start laughing, <laughs> and partially is because of the look on Michael McKeon's face. Yes, it's yes. like they weren't told what was going to be coming down from the right. from the rafters, right. and the look on his face is just like, "Are you freaking kidding me?" Yes, it's priceless. I would have doubted since most of this movie is ad lib, but there's they, right. they actually filmed 20 minutes to present to the distributors. And they said the rest of it we want to do as an ad lib. But this is 20 minutes where we got the rehearsed lines and everything, and everything else we want to do kind of ad lib. And you could tell, because there's sometimes where they break character, they start smiling or they start yeah. laughing. The musical reviews, they had <laughs> no clue that that's what was going to happen. Well, this was a big thing because the writing credits go to Rob Reiner, Chris Guest, Michael McKeon, Harry Shearer, the four of them. And they actually petitioned the Writers Guild that everybody in the movie should have had a writing credit. And they refused their request. Was the stuff that Billy Crystal and Dana Carvey were doing, was that all ad-libbed? Pretty much. But see, that's the thing with these Christopher Guest and Michael McKeon movies. I mean, this is a troupe of guys that have been doing this together from Spinal Tap all the way to For Your Consideration, I think was the last um, entry into their little universe. Well, they're Canadian, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. a lot of them were from SCTV. And of course, mm-hmm. when Spinal Tap is going on, that's when Chris Guest and Michael McKeon were on Saturday Night Live. Harry Shearer, too, was on Saturday Night Live. And that's, yeah. But yeah. that's is the dark times of Saturday Night Live. Dark times, because, yes. Because they didn't know how to harness their creativity because Harry Shearer always wanted to do characters and it had to be perfect. And that's not the Saturday Night Live way because it's all live. So there was a lot of creative differences at that time. So they really started their own. And then you see the evolution with Spinal Zap and then Waiting for Guffman and then Best in Show. I think the script for Best in Show was literally like two pages. And then it was just everything else was just reaction. It's comedy brilliance is what it is. McKeon, of course, being uh, Lenny from uh, Lenny and Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley, kind of hard to have that success and revert back to something different. So, I mean, look at Billy Crystal, another one, another Saturday Night alum who was actually in this movie, you know, Playing the mind with Dan Dana Carvey. Well, he got his start on soap. But that's what I'm saying is yeah. you have some of these people that have already had success, and then they switch over to the Saturday Night Live, and sometimes it doesn't work out. It worked out for like Billy Crystal, but there were some other people that it just did not work for, especially in the dark years of Saturday Night Live. The only person that you really had was Eddie Murphy and maybe Joe Piscopo. Joe Piscopo is in the where are they now? Where are they now? Care? Well, Joe yeah, Piscopo. I mean Piscopo was okay, yeah. but Piscopo was really known for just one role, and that was doing. Uh, Sinatra. 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 
Let's give some credit here where credit's due, and that's to Rob Reiner. This is Rob Reiner's first directorial movie. Before Good job, that, Meathead. Yeah, I mean, this is, that's what he was known for. Come out of the gates with something as complicated as what This Is Spinal Tap is, because let's be honest, this is intricate comedy, because if, if he cuts the movie at a certain place, a joke's going to fall flat. To know to let these guys go and let them do their comedy thing, I think it was a perfect marriage because of what Carl Reiner did with Mel Brooks. Brooks, like was it the 10,000 year old man mm-hmm. where that's all pretty much ad-libbed too it was a perfect marriage with him meeting these guys and getting to make this movie and I think we talked about when we did Princess Bride and when Harry met Sally he allowed those actors to ad-lib as well and to be able to include their own personalities in, into the movie and I think he shouldn't be right. overlooked for that we talked about it before in the other episodes where Rob Reiner is surrounded by such gifted people and he is like a sponge and he has taken all this stuff that's around him. He was with, with like you said, the likes of his father and Mel Brooks and other people probably from the show of shows and then other friends of his father. I mean, you think about it, his character's name is Marty DeBerge. DeBerge. Which is based off of an homage to Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palmer, Steven Spielberg, Federico Fellini, and Michelangelo Antonio. <laughs> I don't know if I pronounced his last name right. And Antonioni. Right off the bat, I mean, this is 1984 when it was released. Already paying homage to the greats of Martin Scorsese sure. and Steven Spielberg already. Well, the reason that Marty's name's brought up is because he did The Last Waltz, which is another music documentary. One of the greatest real live mm-hmm. music documentaries oh, yeah. of all time. That makes sense, but what about Steven Spielberg? Of course, you have Jaws and you have a Close Encounters. Of the yeah, third e. yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great movies by Steven, but I Raiders mean, came out in '82. He's a pro. Oh, yeah, he's and a pro. I'm just kind of surprised. The way he he's... wears his hat is just like how Spielberg used to wear his hat on set, too. Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits to do the score for The Princess Bride. He said the only way he would do it is if somewhere in the movie, Reiner put the USS Oral Sea in the movie. Oh, really? No kidding. The hat is actually in Fred Savage's room. Okay. Yeah, we talked about that in the Princess Bride. Yeah, I think we did talk about that in the... I think so. You know what's fun about doing this episode? One of my poker leagues and my friend Pete, he was wearing the shirt that Nigel wears... The skeleton that where he oh the skeleton the skeleton shirt which which uh, I think it's in the outtakes where he, he was says, actually wearing that shirt he in was public? actually wearing that shirt yesterday in public and I said to him we're recording the podcast tomorrow on that and he's like great you know it's my favorite film of all time and I wow. was like great we should have had that. him on as a, a fourth he, guest you know what he kind of mentioned something but it was so late in the game I just didn't, yeah. I just didn't uh, do that but I think it was interesting because Nigel when he talks about this is his real body. If you watch the, I think it's in right. the outtakes. Yeah, he's like, yeah, right. yeah. like, so when you die, this is what we'll see. Yes, but not the green part. No, it's green. Right. <laughs> it's green. No, it's green. Oh, yeah. so, so shout out to Pete. This episode's for you, my friend. All right, Pete. You better leave something good on the feedback line. Rate and review. Rate and review. Rate and review. Five stars. Say this episode on a scale of one to 10 is at 11. 11. It's at yeah. 11. That's right. Exactly. This goes up to 11. It's one of those crazy well, how moments. How about some of the. How about some of the cameos that are in this movie? I mentioned a Bruno Kirby. We talked about Paul Schaefer. It's probably my favorite. Billy Crystal, a very young Dana Carvey. Mm -hmm. Fran Drescher as the nanny. Fran Drescher. Howard Hessman. Fred Willard. 
Fred, Fred Willard, Willard, of course. Yeah. Yes, Fred Willard. Oh, yeah. Who would go on to be in a lot of their other movies together. He's, he's the reason Ed why. Ed Begley Jr. He's the one that dies by a gardening accident. Gardening accident. Go- that you should gardening don't accident. ask. Don't, don't look into it. Yeah, the, yeah, cops, they... the cops said it's better left unsolved. It's left unsolved, yeah. <laughs> we thought originally maybe it was because they did something to him, and maybe that's why but, it's better left I unsolved. I mean, that's exactly what they're alluding to, I would imagine, right? It's just hysterical because... When they're talking about it, they're like, "Oh, so serious, you know? It's it's best left un- unsolved." The police say, "You know, it's," and they're so serious. We, those British accents make life just so much serious. I wish they would would have gotten a little bit more into the drummers and how they died. The spontaneous combustion. Spontaneous combustion. Yeah, the way they go, it happens to a lot of people every year. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, some of the other people that were in it, uh, Angelica Houston was in it. Yeah, I didn't even know yeah. that was her until I saw the credit. The and I forgot us. about Paul Benedict, of course, uh, from the Jeffersons. He's, he's behind the counter. Behind he's the like, counter. He's like, that's we, how God created me. We yes. put you in seven on the seventh floor <laughs> with one room. <laughs> one room. Instead of having seven that's, rooms. That's a big yeah. difference. <laughs> that's a big difference. Yeah. Paul Schaefer, though, is probably my favorite as the Chicago guy. Just kick me right here. Just, just kick, kick, kick me. my ass just right kick now. My ass. One of the things that I noticed when I was watching it for the podcast, there was a an unused storyline. There was supposed to be a female group that was supposed to be their openers. Really? And they, they had to leave the tour because they all came down with herpes. Oh, and, and they all look, had the little... Uh, and if you yeah. look at the beginning of the movie, both Nigel... And... All three of them do. All three of them they do. All... Herpes. Actually, if you yeah. go into the extended version, more of them have it. The keyboardist has it. In fact, he's talking to the drummer to try to find out how to get rid of it. So. Viv Savage, yeah. That's one of the problems I had with the movie was that didn't play out. It's like, okay, it's there. You see it. You notice it on both of them. But you kind of want to know what happened. And they don't really say right. it unless you go to Is the outtakes. groupies? What's going on, right? Yeah. Right. You just don't know. Well, you just but, figure that it's one of those rock and roll things. Right, yeah. A little penicillin, take care of everything. Right. I forgot about that scene. That is funny. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, they're talking about the album cover. That wouldn't fly in days. There's a lot of good. the old album covers that wouldn't make it now. I mean, look at the stir that the Rolling Stones caused with Sticky Fingers with the real life zipper on the cover. How about Blind Faith? Oh, yeah. Blind Faith. But, That's but, a big one. What's wrong with being sexy? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Sexist. Right. Oh. Sexist. He still doesn't <laughs> know what that meant, though. Right. No, he, had right. No, he had no <laughs> idea. They're so simple. Such a wanker beginning of the movie they're actually doing pretty good on their shows and as the shows go on they get smaller smaller smaller. smaller. they end up headlining with a puppet show at the end the puppet show gets top billing billing. i told him personally that i wanted the puppet show to come after our name right 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 there's one guy in the audience that has a Spinal Tap shirt on, and he ends up sitting down when he realizes that they're going into that jazz odyssey type thing. Yeah. They have a bigger dressing room than the puppets or something. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, that's Oh, that's good. Bigger dressing room right. than the puppets. Yeah. Yay. And then they're having that party afterwards where they're talking about what they're going to do with their careers, and they're like, well, maybe we'll do that Jack the Ripper musical. Yeah. Uh, and they were singing that song. How did that song go? Naughty Jack or something like yeah. that. Naughty Jack? Yeah, something. But yeah. That was another trope of that late 70s, early 80s type thing. That reminds me of, for me, is Sticks. Because then they went and did that... Mr. Roboto. Mr. Roboto. <laughs> Can't stand that. Uh. It just reminds me of that. Because after Tommy, all of those bands wanted to make a rock, rock opera. opera. 
You know, they were talking about earlier about being in one of those concerts, and it was kind of like a I Love Lucy jazz festival. It was the name of the island. It the was Isle, I Isle, Lucy. yeah, like Isle, Isle of Lucy. Man. Isle yeah. of Lucy. Isle of Lucy. It is an homage to the I Love Lucy show. It's, it's just funny to see the, the different venues. They're playing at the Air Force Base. Fred Willard's like, can you play some slow songs? Some like, slow like dance songs? Slow so dance. I can dance. Then they have their manners. Sex farm. Sex farm. <laughs> And everyone's have... like closing their ears, and they're just rocking out. They got the lights. They're like, you know, like they're in front of thirty thousand yeah. people, and the people are just like walking off, trying to have conversations. It's like a high school band playing. And then you get over the airwaves, right? Because it yeah. is a wireless guitar picking up the Air Force feed. Yeah. yeah, that actually happens again in Japan. It's all those little nickel and dime things that just make this movie just hysterical that's what these guys do i can't come up with another group of people that do it better than these guys one of the scenes that popped into my head and i use that that term loosely is when he's going through the the metal security guard at the airport he has the prince albert (laughs) zucchini with the aluminum foil yeah Yeah. Yeah. They're all just laughing at him. Sir. I guess Rob Reiner actually went to see Judas Priest to get an idea of how loud the band is sound. Because this band is supposed to be one of the loudest uh, English bands right. out there, which is kind of like an homage, of course, to the Who. Right. But yeah, I mean, you, Judas Priest, and you do get a little bit of Iron Maiden. That makes sense. What was so, that one? Power Slave, right? 84? Power Slave. Yeah. Power Slave album. So you kind of have that with the ruins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Definitely still Iron Maiden in that. So R.J. Purnell is a real drummer. He plays the drummer for Final Tap. He's best known for being the drummer on that uh, song Mickey by Tony Basil. Really? Yes. Mm-hmm. He actually, actually had a number one hit. Keyboardist is famous, too. And he he did, did look familiar. Funny thing about him is when they're doing the pods... And he's oh the pod scene and he yes does, and he's dressed up like the mental patient yes it makes me laugh too I forgot about that one the pod for the bassist wouldn't open yeah right. that was hysterical banging but, it with a hammer and a acetylene yeah. torch yeah. trying to open yeah. I liked it. The only problem I had with that scene was when he got his arm back in it at the end. That was it, a little stupid. It yeah. was stupid and a little forced. Try to set it on fire to like open yeah. it up. They're trying to heat it up. Yeah. yeah. Right. But, but ever so often, it, it does kind of like look it like it's kind of open, open just a little bit. A little off on that. But I like the idea of it more than how they pulled it off. Yeah. It's supposed to play off as just kind of wanky, too. So The stupid pyrotechnics of that era. Right, right. Keyboardist was in a band called Rare Bird. I guess they had a top 30 hit in the UK. So that's all I know about. So it doesn't exist is what you're saying. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we would all love to have a top 40 hit. So, hey. Even in the UK. Sure. Even in the UK. Yeah. In any country. So originally, Rob Reiner was my pick as director. And I did not have him in my first original four. And the only reason why I didn't pick him in the original four was because I was thinking about doing a mockumentary of like... This one and Mighty Wind and The Ruddles. A lot of people point to this movie as being the standard of mockumentary, but they steal a little bit from The Ruddles. There's a lot of things that I see that they used here to make this documentary. The interview styles. If you ever get a chance to see, if you haven't seen The Ruddles, try to pick up a copy. It's probably going to be at a library. You probably can get a really bootlegged version off of YouTube, but that's a film that I think really started. Or call Ken. Or call me and come over. We'll yeah. watch it together. It's fine. Actually, it's actually Mighty Python and the Saturday Night Live alum actually got together and, and made that film. Pretty cool. It's incredible. It really is. Without this is Spinal Tap, there is no Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Oh, which I like a lot, too. I love That's the a... Dewey Cox. Because the songs from the Dewey Cox story have the same sort of irreverent humor that the Spinal Tap songs have. 
Yeah, and Jonathan C. Riley also is a very talented musician as well and, and plays and sings the songs himself. Very similar to this movie and the Ruddles movie outside of Eric Idle, who's in it. Everybody else is a pure musician in that movie as well. So I like it when you get real people that know how to really play. And these guys, and this is Spinal Tap, they are very good, very good musicians. Not just competent, talented yeah, they could s- serve as session musicians for any type of band, for any even jazz fusion, even, <laughs> even jazz, jazz fusion. Yeah. yeah, you have a bunch of guys who are just insanely talented at everything they do. These guys I can't could do think of anything. anything they've done that's been bad. Even doing serious acting, because Michael McKeon plays in the Better Call Saul series, which is the precursor mm-hmm. to the Breaking Bad series, and he plays a serious type character. And he is just amazing as Saul's brother. <laughs> it's just yeah. one of those things that these guys are just so insanely talented at everything that they do. I do think that some of their later stuff, they didn't do it together, but there was like a combination of some of the group in these other movies like For Your Consideration and Mascots, which is a Netflix original movie. And to be honest with you, it tries to be dog and show and it fails miserably. Best in show? I mean, sorry, best in show. <laughs> dog and show is good too. Dog and show, yeah. yeah. But you know what I mean? These guys, when I'm saying talented, they can act. They can act serious act. They can be hilariously funny and they can play music. There's really it's nothing that threat. they yeah. There's it's nothing they threat. can't do. Yeah. It's like they pick up something and they're immediately good at it. It's amazing. That's what I was getting at. Because sure, I was just answering more what Eric was saying that he hadn't seen anything that wasn't that good. Those were just a couple of movies that I thought of. When you say about dramatic roles, Christopher Guest is playing the Doctor and Few Good Men. We had talked about that right. during oh, that. Oh yeah, episode. that's right. He's somebody that is like a chameleon. You were talking about how he looks like Ozzy Osbourne here and how he just kind of changes his look almost for every role that he's in. He doesn't look like the same person right. in each of these movies that he does. He does something to his hair and or makeup or whatever, and he just makes it look a little bit different than what what I would imagine is how he looks normally is probably what we see in A Few Good Men. That's probably how he originally he really looks like. Yeah, you're probably right. A lot of talent here. And, of course, we talked about Rob Reiner, and he was the director we selected. So much talent there, and this being his first try at uh, being a director. And, of course, being Meathead from Meathead. All, all in the Family. He's a very gifted person. We had just talked about him in uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, how fun he was in that. To us, that may be one of our favorite movie roles that he's ever been in. So a very talented director slash actor. He was the first choice. I don't remember her name, but I know they had picked somebody else to direct this movie. Wasn't it the lady who directed The Decline of Western Civilization? It could have been. I don't know that. Because The the Decline of Western Civilization Part 1 had just come out when Spinal Tap was made. The Decline of Western Civilization Part 1 is about uh, punk rock and how it declined. Decline of Western Civilization Part 2 is the metal scene, especially the Sunset Strip metal scene, and how it declined. There is a part three to that. I've never seen the part three, though. Is it grunge? My, it very well could be. It would make sense that that would be the yeah. next where it would go. Be since how grunge killed hair metal. <laughs> it one, kind of one, one day, Poison was on top, and the next and day, Pearl Jam. <laughs> and then Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, and it was uh, all over. Did you know that the home release of this uh, video originally had a disclaimer saying that this is not a real band? 
Really? Well, a lot of people did. Like, you were talking about the Gallaghers from Oasis. They mm-hmm. actually thought it was a real band. And it wasn't until they started to read the lyrics that they realized that it wasn't a real band. Spinal Tap actually uh, reformed again and toured a little bit later on. Kind of a sequel to This Is it Spinal was the Tap. Christmas the re- it was a Christmas the re- special, wasn't it? I think it was the return of Spinal Tap. I think it was just a um, concert, memory serves me correct. But again, not the original director. And I just don't think you could recreate the magic that you have in this film again. Um mm-hmm. It's just way too hard to even try. But musically, they are so sound that it made sense for them to try to tour as Spinal Tap. We talked about the Ruddles, and I already mentioned Ruddles had come out with some additional music after that film and a sequel film called Can't Buy Me Lunch, which, you know, it's, <laughs> again, just like what I just said here, you just don't go back to the well if, you know, you used up well, all the water. Of course you do. Come well, on. <laughs> well, so. Spinal Tap, they have gotten together for, like, a one-off show. I can't remember what it was. I know that they Weren't they part of the Live Aid 84 as well? I was going to say, they played they? at Wembley. I think, I think so. Wembley, so. Did yeah, they play so. Live Aid? Oh, yeah, that's I'm awesome. Pretty sure. I, didn't, I didn't know that. But here recently in the past, I think like 10 or 15 years, they did play like a one-off show. They did get back together. It, w- it was somebody asked them to. It wouldn't be surprising if it wasn't Dave Grohl. Was it just a big three, like a different drummer and keyboardist? Yeah. Let's be honest, that's all you really care about, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, those are the main characters. But amazingly enough, something that we would be remiss, or I would be remiss in saying that one of the things that Spinal Tap spawned on the Cartoon Network, they have the Adult Swim. I there love was Adult a, Swim. There was a cartoon called Metal Metalocalypse, hmm. and it was about a bunch of heavy metal guys, and it's very similar to Spinal Tap. Animated, I'm sure. Yeah. It's all animated. Oh. It's very funny. The guys who actually played the instruments and everything for the cartoon band actually went on tour with Uproar Festival. It was a briefly lived rock star energy tour that they would put up every year. And they were actually one of the headliner bands. I see. So we were talking about Fran Drescher. She played the PR yeah, she was the yeah, PR, PR for the records. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's an episode on The Nanny where they bring that character back. It's not her. Oh, it is her. She plays actually, I think, both roles. Well, that's pretty yeah. funny. Yeah, so she brings them back and she's trying to promote a band at that particular time. <laughs> I think that was kind of a nice little homage to that character. I, I actually don't liked her here. She didn't do the annoying laugh. <laughs> no, she song. was your stereotypical early 80s kind of PR, New York, higher brow kind of person. Well, isn't Polymer Records, isn't that supposed to be like Polygon Records? Polygon or Polygram Records, yeah. Yeah. This is a fun little movie. It really is. I'm happy we were able to watch it again. If I had to do it over again, then I would probably have picked this as my first movie to play for this Rob Reiner collection. It fits really well in his best movies out there. It is. It's funny. I I watched this thing three times over the past week, and you know what's coming up. You know the lines word for word practically when you just hear them, but you're just like, I still chuckle and laugh every time I see it. It is a great flick. Throwing my hat to my review here early, aren't I? We didn't really go into real detail about going to 11. Well, why don't you just make 10 the loudest one? Yeah. Right. But, but this goes, but this to, goes 11. to 11. This yeah. one goes to 11. It's an infamous line. Funny you say that because I was talking with a friend of mine at work and we were talking about something. I don't remember what it was, but he threw that line out there. 
And I go, oh, man, that's Spinal Tap. I'm really impressed. He had no idea where it came from. None whatsoever. It's so common in the vernacular of the culture that people don't even know where it comes from, which is sad. Yeah, there's a lot of this stuff from this movie that's worked its way into the ether of everyday life. Let's take it to 11. It's become iconic. Very much. Towards the end of this movie, you know, when they got a little bit more serious, I think it took a little bit away from the role that it was on a little bit. I know they were trying to play the John Lennon, Paul McCartney. Well, there's a lot of that very, very, very eerily similar to the Let It Be Sessions videos. If you're a Beatles fan, you recognize what they're trying to get at there. And we didn't talk much about the actor who played the manager, Ian Faith, Tony Hendra. He recently died, I think, in March of this year. I'm not sure what of, but he did state that a day before filming, he had contemplated suicide, and it was this movie that actually saved him. That really? He, he put that in his book. Oh. It's amazing. He was really good in this movie, too. He reminded me of what a, a road manager would do. He looked like a road, he looked like a British road manager. I mean, then you had Howard Hessman that came by and mispronounced his name. Call so. him Flem or he looks, something. He looks like he would fit right in in Almost Famous. Yes, one exactly. Of sure, I yeah. can definitely see him in there. And just some of the things that he did, you can debate his competency, especially when he made the album cover all black. And, you know, that came from earlier when he's talking to Fran Drescher about the White Album. She goes, look at the Beatles and the White Album. There was nothing on there. There was no pictures. It was all white. And he's probably thinking, well, then I'll go black. You can't even put the name of the band in there because it's all black. So. Right, or they're signing it. There's uh, in well, the yeah, outtakes, you, right? They're signing it in sharpie. and they're signing yeah. it with probably black because I'm sure they. They didn't was have the it was silver. black sharpie, and the guys they didn't like, have the silver. You gotta look at it at an angle. Look at it in the light. Look at the like, yes. But you look at the background but, of the record store. They have all their albums in the background being sold, but you can't tell that any records are really being sold because it's all black. I, when I first watched right. it, I'd even notice that there were albums back there, and then the second time I'm going. Oh, they're behind them. All the records are behind them. They're in black. And they're all five ninety nine, right? Right, five ninety nine, which yeah. is really cheap back then. When Metallica came out with the black album titled Metallica, MTV did a thing where they were promoting the black album, and they had the Spinal Tap guys out to come talk to Metallica about whose black album was better. <laughs> and Metallica is not really known for their sense of humor. But back then, they did, and I guess it was pretty funny to have the two bands compare which Black Album was better. Metallica's Black Album, if I remember right, that was ninety ninety one, wasn't it? Yep. Because that was when I was in high school, and that's only seven years past this one, so they're not too far right. apart. Right, yeah. and that's when MTV was, they ruled the roost. Yeah. If you think about it, whoever got that together, kudos to Genius. them. Both James and Lars have come out and said that the Spinal Tap was one of the reasons that they thought to do a Black Album cover, even though the Black Album does have the snake. But you have to take the album and turn it like they do for the signing to see the snake on on the cover. It's things like that. It's worked its way into everything. It's amazing. It really is. My favorite part here in this movie is when they get lost trying to find the stage. (laughs) I think that it is so classic. They get to that door where it says this is not an exit. And then they think to themselves, well, we don't want an exit. That could have been to the stage. It could have led them. Granted, we find out later. Authorized personnel. Authorized Well, you're authorized. You're authorized. You're you're a man. You're musicians, aren't you? Right. (laughs) Um, And then they go around in circles. 
There's actually an uh, outtake of that where they're like crying for help. Uh, Nigel stands and he's just like, I'm going to stand here and just cry for help. Help. But the one thing that I didn't like about this movie was one of its charms. And then that's the drummer. I wish they would have played more often about how the drummers died and stuff. But the last drummer dying from the same thing that their second drummer died of, which is just an exploding. It's spontaneous it's, combustion. Get it yeah. right now. Come on. That's lazy writing. Why? It happens to more people than you think. I, I mean, I wish something would have like a light drop on top of them or, or oh, just geez. something Jeez. something that was different. <laughs> hey, well, spears thrown through them, bow and arrow. I don't know. But to have them just explode like the other drummer did, you already did that bit. I just felt like that was lazy. I think they did that because they said early on, you know, that right. many people spontaneous combust every year. And yeah, so I think they were just making the point that, oh, it happens to. It happens. Know. Yeah. Now, right. if I remember right, he said in the bathtub when he was doing his interview that, you know, the, the odds of him dying are, you know, <laughs> yeah. slim. Yeah. Right. So, you you know, it's planting that seed that something's right, going to happen. Right. Oh, we all know he's going to die. It's just a question sure. of how and when. I, right. Maybe maybe a radio dropping in the tub while he's saying that would have been Sure, the best or thing drowns. I don't know. That's a little <laughs> cryptic now. A little but, dark. Uh, yeah. But yeah. A little dark. We're yeah. all just a little bit dark, I guess. So, what about you guys? Any favorite scenes that we haven't talked about or things that you didn't like? My favorite scene I've brought up several times is the little mini Stonehenge coming down. I, and uh, it's, it's Michael so McKeon's expression is just, it's, and the little people, <laughs> the little dwarfs. I love and it. And then Harry Shearer after. Yes. So, are yes. we doing Stonehenge? So, tomorrow night, are, <laughs> are we, we doing Stonehenge? Are we doing Stonehenge? Yes. No, we're not bloody doing Stonehenge. <laughs> Michael McKeon throughout that whole sequence is funny because. He's dressed up like the druid, and he never looks like he's real sold on the whole idea to begin with. Oh, yes. And then when it comes the down druids. from the, <laughs> and like, then when that the comes down from the ceiling, it's just like the look on his face is like, you can't be serious. Right. <laughs> it makes me laugh. It really does. I'm trying to think of something I'm really not crazy about in the movie. There are some parts where it kind of drags a little bit, but I mean, overall, it's it's a funny movie. Honestly, I, I, it's very weird that I say this, but I think I would have liked little less backstory from their early days and more of the antics at the concerts that weren't canceled. How things just kept going down and down right, and right. down and just watching them just lose it. I think I would have liked to seen Like they're performing at a birthday party because that's... Something like, like that. Yeah, yeah, like a bar mitzvah or... Uh, I'm, yeah, you I'm know. so glad, though, that they cut out the jazz... Odyssey. The jazz fusion. I just, yeah. Or something like maybe seem at a county fair. You know, just something, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Because I, I love when they were at the Air Force Base. I'm like, it's perfect. It's like Milwaukee canceled or one of the shows canceled. Like, well, we're playing at an Air Force Base. He's like, what? Yes. And he was talking about Des Moines, yeah. Iowa. And then he's Des Moines, like, Iowa. I don't know Des where it is. Yeah. I don't know where yeah. Des Moines is. Milwaukee is something. You'll probably have to go to New York and fly there. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's funny that you say that it drags, which is funny because this movie is only... It's, it's a great watch because it's under an hour 30. I don't want to say it dragged. I guess I wanted a little bit more of the... God, how do I say it? There's just some scenes where it doesn't mesh together or flow like it. I really wanted it to. Little things, but nothing major. I would have liked to see maybe a little bit more interviews with the other band members. I mean, you talked to the drummer, but I think the keyboardist, you didn't get a lot out of that. And I, I would have liked to hear maybe a little bit more backstory on him. And I like them going back in time because then that's how we listen to the reviews of the album that's you know, true i had this like... exact same complaint about not talking to the drummer and the keyboardist when we talked about almost famous 
Mm. Oh, at least I'm consistent. He, he so. wants the whole band. <laughs> he wants. I want the whole band, right? baby. But that just goes to show you that if there's a rock and roll or music documentary or movie that pulls from this, there's elements that are always going to be there from this. And that shows you just how iconic the movie really is. All right, gentlemen, well, we're going to wrap it up here. Let's talk about our reviews of this movie. And I think they're all going to be pretty on par, but I'm curious to see what you guys say. Ted, start us out. What do you think? This is one of those movies that's just, I like it so much. And I know there's parts of it that aren't probably really good, but I still find it amusing. It's become iconic. I do like the music. There's not a whole lot about the movie that I don't like. It's a cultural phenomenon where you have people who have never seen the movie that quote the movie. I mean, you've reached the next level. This movie for me is a solid B+. It doesn't quite reach the A level, but it's a movie that I always feel good. It always makes me laugh. I like that in a funny movie where I always feel good at the end. That's really where I come down on the movie. It's probably my shortest review ever. I was thinking the same thing. That has got to be Ted's shortest <laughs> review ever. It's like under I, a minute. I've said everything that I really like about the movie. And every time I watch it, I will say this. Every time I watch it, I'm always amazed by how talented Michael McKeon and Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer are. And I know their comedy probably isn't for everybody. But man, the talent there is next level. It's just amazing. So, Eric, what's your review? Well, boy, man, I'll tell you what, you pretty much uh, stole my review uh, almost verbatim. It's a great watch for me. I love the cast. I love the music. I love the one-liners. I laugh every time I watch this movie. It is a feel-good favorite. I watched it three times in the last week, and I didn't get sick of it at all. There's a few little things here and there. You know, they drag a little bit, but it's a hair dated. But honestly, I like it. I like it being dated because it's of the era. I wish there was, I don't think there's a 4K version of this one out. Correct me if we're wrong, but I don't think there is. No, and it probably would be horribly mastered anyway. But the movie itself is just a great movie. It's not the greatest movie of all time. I can't give it an A as much as I'd like to, but I fall on par with you, Ted. B+. Plus solid b plus and one of the fun things too i know you're a music guy like i am eric Mm -hmm. is picking out the little things that compare them to other bands they've taken from real life bands like the different outfits that they wear how they wear their hair it's all those little things that just makes it so much fun for me it is and for me the funniest thing in this movie from a to z is the accents The accents of the guys are just incredible. How they use the vocabulary and the vernacular, talking with each other, and their their stupid little conversations that they have. It's so natural, and that a good chunk of this movie is ad-libbed. It's just incredible. It's just a tribute to these guys' talent. It's just just so great. I'm surprised they did not make a sequel. Yeah, me too. You know, like post-Japan or something. I don't know. I'm also glad, though, that they didn't come back and revisit it, because it would be hard to recapture that energy again. I guess you're kind of right. It kind of reminds me of some of those sequels that shouldn't have been made, you know? Mm -hmm. And the one that comes to mind with me, of course, is our good friend Kevin Smith with Clerks Mm -hmm. and Clerks 2, which, in my opinion, shouldn't have been made. Well, boom. We might be able to talk about that soon. We'll see. We might be able to. Yeah. But you got movies like Airplane, then you have Airplane 2, which I still enjoy. It's got the Shatner in it. Godfather, Godfather 2. Electric Boogaloo. Yeah. Yep. Right. That's, a, that's a real funny movie, too. It is. It, it's, a, all right, it's an Ken, East Lifer. It's all on you, man. What's your review? Take so, it to 11, Ken. 
ticket to 11. I wish I can give this movie an 11. On a scale of 1 to 10, this is an 11. Um, mm. No, this is not an 11. This is unfortunately not in the 8 category. I'm actually on the same boat as all of you right now. It's a B plus as well for me. The versatility of the actors here with their accents, with their acting, their musical talent, and to be able to jump around and play different styles of music is very impressive. When I first heard about this movie, I kind of almost shied away a little bit from it because I wasn't a heavy metal, hard rock kind of guy. I liked classic rock, but more like the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Fleetwood Mac. wasn't really into this type of music itself. However, you could see the genius in, in the styles of this music. Even though the lyrics aren't the greatest, but they're not supposed to be. It's supposed to be That's fun. the whole point of the movie. That's the whole point of the movie. But there's talent behind that, though, still. There's still yes. talent behind those lyrics. As I stated earlier, the guitar work of these guys can rival most studio musicians. I mean, they are really, really good. You could argue that not too many directors have the hot start that Rob Reiner had coming out of the gate. He comes out with, this is Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and A Few Good Men. That's the start of his career. And that's an impressive start. That's a pretty impressive resume. Usually you don't start off this strong. That comes from, we believe, his inner circle, the people that he's been surrounded by, his dad, his uncle, Mel Brooks. Sally Struthers. Sally Struthers, yeah. Yeah, Archie, Archie Bunker. He is a sponge and he has learned from the greats and it shows right off the bat in this first film. The fact that he was able to fool many well-known artists into thinking that this was a real documentary shows just how credible he is. I love this movie because we can go back in it tomorrow, watch it again, and catch something that we probably didn't catch before. Because it has those inside jokes that we probably missed. And as we get older and learn more things about music and just life in general, we start picking up on even more things. So there's just a lot of nuggets here. But it does sometimes drag a little bit. I think a little bit at the end when, of course, you have the infighting. I do think it's kind of nice to see them reconnect on stage at the end there. However, that whole sequence at the end seemed kind of rushed for an hour and 22 minute film. I think you could just have a little bit more fun. So that's why I'm giving it a B plus, but it's enjoyable. I wholeheartedly would watch this again. In fact, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't watch it again this year because it's that funny. There you go. So we all pretty much give it a B plus. We're all on part of the same page. I know. What's, what's wrong? Is there something in the water? All three of us agree. I think we did this on The Princess Bride. Ken and I I didn't get into an argument on this one. Yeah. Is there something that you can pick a fight with me or something, Ken? Uh, Barry Sanders is the second greatest running back of all time. Yeah, let's don't go there. (laughs) I'm not up for it. Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. The GOAT. I shouldn't have have opened my mouth. There we go. That's for another podcast. Irritate Ted podcast will be coming uh, next year in 2022, so stay tuned for that. Well, I hope everyone has enjoyed the podcast today of uh, This is Spinal Tap. Stay tuned. Next episode, we're doing a little retro back to our one of my directors, Sidney Pollack. We're going to go uh, look at the 1972 release, Jeremiah Johnson. Hope everyone stays tuned for that one. It's been many, many years since I've seen that, so I'm looking forward to watching that one again and go going into uh, a deep dive on one of my favorite directors. So, Ken, where can everyone find uh, the Movie Marquee out there in the Internet world? You can find us on mm-hmm. Facebook at the Movie Marquee. Type in 
the Movie Marquee on Facebook. There we are. We have a community. You join our group. We'll discuss movies and have a great old time. But on the other side of the internet, Ted? Dark side of the web at Twitter. <laughs> we are at the movie underscore marquee with two E's. Well, thank you for joining us. It's been our pleasure, and we can't wait to uh, review our next film, Jeremiah Johnson. So I hope everyone enjoys it. Have a good one. We'll see you next time. See you at the movies. See you next time on the Movie Marquee. Mm-hmm.